What is the one way that we can get better at anything in life? Photography, of course, that's what we're here to talk about, right? But pretty much any skill. Okay, don't throw tomatoes at me here. Unless they're Roma tomatoes. I am in the process of making salsa from my garden harvest. I could use a few more. Okay, but how do we get better? We learn more. I know, if this had like one of those tracks on the back, it would be like, wah, wah, wah. But that's really the way that we're going to improve anything that we want to do in life. More input and information is going to give us a different and improved output. So if we want to get better at something like photography, we need to seek out the knowledge that will help get us there. I think that's pretty logical. When I was growing up, <clears throat> 80s, uh, that meant going to the library or taking a class from someone who knew more or getting a talented mentor. Those were the options pre-internet. Now, there are so many ways to learn. And this episode is for you. If you have ever wondered what you should be doing to get better at photography, I have a lot invested in learning and teaching. And it's important for me personally to help people learn as effectively as possible. So today's episode is all about the different mediums for learning something and how to understand what makes you learn and retain information, especially in this digital age that we live in. And I'm going to be straight up with you here. I've learned via just about every method there is, especially with photography. And there are hidden pros and cons to each, depending on where you are at in your journey and the way that you learn. This episode is about gaining you back your time, because let's not waste it, it's the most precious resource that we have, and learning new skills in the most effective way. Hi, I'm Christine Riche, an artist and mentor to photographers around the world. Consider me your interstellar guide on the path to being a better nightscape photographer. In this podcast, we will bring together our artistic right brain and technical left brain by exploring creativity, art, and inspiration in photography, as well as diving into technique, gear, and strategy necessary to elevate your craft and photographic practice. I am so happy to be a part of your Milky Way journey. This is the After Dark Photography Podcast. Well, hello there. Welcome to the podcast today. So lovely to have you here. I am in the middle of my free training, my Your First Milky Way training. And that's kind of what spurred on today's episode in conjunction with the in-person workshop that I got to do just this past month. All of this has gotten me thinking a little bit about how we learn and how we retain new information, because I see a lot of different um, learning styles and different ways that people are bringing in information and the different outputs that we have. So I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. And yes, this will be specific to photography, but of course, it's applicable to so much more than photography. 
I can remember that I used to get in these heated online discussions with people about whether or not going to university or college for photography was useful. And there were so many people who said it was a waste of time. Well, I have a degree in photography. I went to university for photography. I actually did two degrees. I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts, major in photography and Bachelor of Design. And I used both of those degrees in a corporate creative setting for over a decade. So I would get a little bit defensive about it. As I have been teaching more and more over the years and also consuming information as a learner in different ways, I've come to see a lot of pros and cons basically on both sides. So in an era of the University of YouTube and being self-taught and university and workshops and online classes and all of the things, what is relevant? And what is the best way for you to hit your goals? That's what I want to talk about with you today. Now, I am in the business of teaching and learning. And I have been since I was a terrified 22-year-old Christine walking in to NASCAD University, the multimedia department, into 16 adults sitting at those colored iMacs. Who remembers those, by the way? They were so fun. Why don't they make computers colored like that anymore? Who were sitting there waiting to learn Photoshop. Now, they were all sitting and waiting because I was too scared to greet them individually. So I actually hid in the equipment booking office, that's what we called the cage, uh, until the class officially started, like until the minute when it was like, okay, class is starting. I was like, okay, I don't have to make small talk with these people. I can just go in and teach because I was genuinely terrified. This is the first time teaching in a university setting in any formalized setting. But maybe... I could say it goes back even farther. When I was in junior and senior high, I worked as a student mentor and I mentored other students in subjects like math. And really, for as long as I can remember, I've loved teaching and learning. There wasn't, for me, a question of whether or not I'd go to university. Of course I would. And frankly, right now, given carte blanche and all of my family's needs paid for now, I would go back to university in a heartbeat and do my master's of fine art. Hashtag lifelong learner right here. But going to university for any type of creative job, that's no longer a given. Many people decide to learn in other ways because there are so many other options now. You know, I'm the founder of the Night Photography Academy. That's where I run my signature course, the Milky Way Photography Masterclass. I have also taught in person at NASCAD University and in person privately through my own business, group classes, as well as one-on-one and mentorships. I went to university. I've bought many online courses. I've gone to workshops as well as worked one-on-one with a mentor. And yes, I have also hung out on the University of YouTube and I have taken those MOOCs, the massive online courses. I have to say, I feel pretty confident that I've learned in most all ways that are available with, I would say, varying results. Now, one disclaimer of this episode, it's mostly from my experience. 
it will bring in a few different models of learning and a little bit background here because I'm always for bringing you that type of information. However, I do not have a formal education in education or instructional design. So that's not the perspective that you're going to get here today. And I think it's kind of funny, actually. Maybe it's a little bit ironic because I'm going to be talking about the different ways that we can learn from a perspective of someone who has not uh, had any formal training in that. So if we want to get a bit meta, there it is. But the point of this episode is to help you learn more quickly and effectively, which includes where I think the different learning options are going to fit in to your point in your journey. And we're going to get to that. But first, we need to talk all about you. Now, of course, I can't really do that here on the podcast with you. So I'm going to talk about myself. And what I want you to do is to pull out the pieces that are relevant to you. And the question that I want you to think about, the thing that we want to talk about together, is how you learn. And probably the learning model that I find the most interesting, especially for myself when I'm thinking about creating a course, is the VARC model. Now VARC, I'm not saying BARC, I'm not hanging out with jazz here. VARC stands for Visual Oral Read Slash Writing and Kinesthetic Sensory Modalities. And this, the VARC model was designed by a New Zealand teacher. His name is Neil Fleming, and he came up with this in 1987. And basically, Fleming developed a way to help students learn more about their preferences. Now, this model was actually much more widely distributed when Fleming and Colleen Mills um, published in 1992. Um, It was called Not Another Inventory, Rather a Catalyst for Reflection. And in that, it suggests that these four modalities seem to reflect the experiences of the students and teachers. There are detractors to this model, and frankly, as there are for anything. You know, there should be. We don't all neatly fit into any box that's out there. But I am willing to bet you are going to resonate with at least one of these modalities. And I want us to walk through them because understanding the way that we learn, the primary ways we learn, and then the secondary and tertiary ways that we learn are really useful because that is actually going to come right into how we should be choosing the methods for learning, the actual ways that we take courses that we decide to proceed for a goal. So I want you to listen through what I'm going to be talking about here, the four different modalities that uh, Fleming and uh, Mills really popularized in their 1992 paper. And I want you to to, I'm saying listen to it, but you're going to hear that one of the ways is listening and you might not be that way, but I want you to listen anyways. We're here on the podcast, okay? And just kind of take note, like, okay, which one sounds like me, feels like me, which one clicks? Okay, so the first in V is visual. And visual learners are learners who are able to better retain information when it's presented to them in a graphic way. So think pictures, videos, posters, slides, charts, graphs, diagrams, 
all of those things like infographics. Do you like a good infographic? I love a good infographic, except when I come across them on Pinterest on my phone and I'm like, everything's too small. And then you try and zoom in on Pinterest and then it's like, do you want to see other photos like this? I'm like, no, I just want to see the infographic. Anyways, you probably are a bit of a visual learner because you're interested in photography. Most creatives are going to learn well visually. This is my wheelhouse, personally. And if something is presented to me in a visual and graphic way, it's going to stick with me a heck of a lot longer. So I have a feeling that you probably are in the same boat, which makes me thankful that you're here because this is a podcast, which is the least visual thing that you can do. But it does lead into the next, the A in the VARC model, which is auditory or oral learners. And they're learners who prefer information that's presented to them verbally. So (laughs) podcasts is a really great way for that. You know, these type of learners can work uh, really well in a group setting where people can talk through ideas together. And auditory learners also can process information by speaking their ideas aloud. And having, inside of course, having things like discussion topics and ideas, um, that will help auditory learners remember things. Also, storytelling is going to really help as well. Now, I personally think storytelling helps all type of learners, but auditory learners especially. Then the third is the reading and writing. And these are learners who really focus on the written word. Yeah, I know. We're groundbreaking here, right? They, these types of learners, they succeed really well with written information and workshops and presentations, um, things that are a little bit more text heavy. So having those visuals, but then also having words accompanying with them is really useful. Um, having worksheets that are being uh part of a lesson and part of the way that um, things are presented are really useful for people who process in a reading and writing manner. Uh, Also, note takers. If you are a big note taker, then there is a good chance that you are processing things through reading and writing. And then lastly, the last type of learner we have in the VARC model, the K, which I like because I'm Christine with a K, is a kinesthetic learner. And kinesthetic learners do well when they are taking a physically active role. So they're hands-on learners and they thrive well when they're engaging all of their senses in their coursework. And if the training that they're doing doesn't involve like actually getting out and doing and being out there, like let's say an in-person workshop, um, things like homework and targeted exercises that get kinesthetic learners out and actually doing things, like you have to go out and do X thing in order to get to the next step, that's going to be something that's really useful for kinesthetic learners. So as you're listening through these, we have the visual learners, auditory learners, reading and writing, and kinesthetic. You probably are identifying with a few of them. As I've already said, I am a visual learner. Obviously, I'm a photographer. I am very a visual person. And I'm also a reading and writing learner. In fact, I have to process each of these podcast episodes by writing out my ideas in some form. 
I will script some pieces so that I get the information correct, but other times it's more so about rearranging the structure of my writing. Uh, often, I will start putting some th- ideas together and then I'll read through it and I'll be like, oh, I've put these together backwards, which I have a slight dyslexia, so it makes a ton of sense. So when I write things out, it's really easy for me to then visually see it and shift things around into a structure that makes more sense. So when we start to understand the ways in which we learn, we can then support ourselves to learn more effectively. So when we take this information, we are now going to apply it to the different actual ways that we can learn. What are the different um, options available to us to learn something new, like learning more about photography, maybe Milky Way photography, maybe fashion photography, food photography, whatever it is that you want. What are those actual now ways that we can learn this? And how does it maybe support or not the type of learner that you are? Of course, we have university and college education. We have online classes and online classes can be arranged. They can be facilitated learning where you have uh, live calls and then they can be self-directed learning. We also have in-person workshops or one-on-one, maybe working with a mentor. And then there's the various ways of being self-taught online. And I've got also one other little bonus at the end. The other method, and I'm not really going to put it in here, is being like mentored literally one-on-one with someone else where it's kind of like an internship almost. Internships happen, but you know, when I was younger, if you weren't going to go to university for photography, the only way you were going to learn is if there was a photographer that you just went and you lived and breathed their job with them. That still happens a little bit now, but it's to a lot less of an extent. It's just not as popular now with online learning. So I don't really include that um, in this list because it's just not something that happens as much now as it did, say, 10 or 20 years ago. You know, if you wanted to be a journalist and you weren't going to go to journalism school while you were going, uh, photojournalist rather, then you were going to be shadowing someone and learning from them directly. And when I was in university, and working in a camera shop, I would often meet people who that's how they got their start. I don't meet many people now who that's how they've got their start. We're going to look at the pros and cons of each of these methods as I see them, and I'm going to give you my personal experience with them and how I think it applies to you and the the type of learner that you are. The idea here is to help you decide the most effective way for you to learn. And then after that, I'm going to go into some specific techniques that I found helpful for learning no matter what way you decide to move forward with. For us to be successful with this and for this to even matter to you, I need you to do something else first. I need you to actually think of a goal that you have. And this is going to come back. I went in depth into this in episode six. So you can go back and listen to episode six. Uh, I'm not going to go crazy in detail here, but we need to start with the end in mind. So if we are going to be looking at, okay, well, what are the different ways for me to learn? It's really important to also be like, well, what 
do I want to learn? What is the outcome and the goal that I have? Because that can be very different. If the goal is to learn a very specific technique, there's going to be a different recommendation than if the goal is to start a photography business or the goal is to uh, get a really great photo that I'm going to put up on the wall. The goal, the end point, and of course it's not an actual end point because it's always ongoing, but this particular end, this goalpost, this signpost that we're looking to get to becomes very important to define before we decide on the manner with which we want to get there. It's the same thing, like if I am deciding on a location to go to, that's going to determine the way I get there. Am I going to go to Yellow Park down the road? Well, I'm just going to walk there with my kids. <laughs> it's just a couple minutes down the road. Um, you know, taking a car there doesn't make any sense. Why am I going to use my gas guzzling SUV to go to a place we can walk to easily? I'm certainly not going to take an airplane there. But let's say I'm going to go to the West Coast. Uh, I'm not walking there. can tell you that for free. And the only way I'm driving there is if someone gets me an RV and I can have like a fun cross-Canada road trip. Uh, I'd love to have an RV, by the way, that would be super fun. But no, I'm probably going to fly there. That makes the most sense. And of course it does. You know, when I put it in that way, you're like, yeah, duh, Christine. But it's the same thing with anything in life, and especially with learning something new. We have to understand what is our primary goal? Where do we want to get to? Because then the part in between, which is here, what we're going to be talking about, the different ways we can get there, that becomes really, really obvious. And when we pair that with the type of learner we are and what we need to be best supported in our learning, it's like a no-brainer. First up, we are going to start with university and college. So what are the pros and cons? The pros for university and college is that it's a defined path to follow. You are not having to come up with this all on your own. Someone else has already done that for you. They have laid out all of the bits and pieces that you need, and they say, you got to go in this path. This is where you go, and you are going to get this thing at the end. We've done the work for you. In addition, there's such a strong community and sense of collaboration that comes from being in university, and collaboration does so much for us. There are studies upon studies on how collaboration is useful for learning. Um, It develops a higher level of thinking, of communication, of management, self-management, leadership skills. It's shown to give you an increase in understanding. It helps in things like self-esteem, responsibility, all of these things that come from collaboration. And then community, well, we know that the best things in life have a community, uh, people who are there to support you. And university gives you a built-in community. Also gives you baked-in accountability. Yes, you can drop out of university, but if you've taken all this work to be there, then you're going to be held accountable by your professors or your instructors at college. It's baked into the program. It's also going to give you exposure to new things. And this is probably one of the biggest 
takeaways for me from my overall experience. The other one would be critique, (laughs) critique and understanding why I'm doing it. But the exposure to things that I had never even thought about before. And a matter of fact, when I went to NASCAD University, I went there to be a photographer. That was my, this is, I'm going to be a photographer. And then in my first year, there was these open studios that you had to take. So you're at this particular university at NASCAD University, you don't just do photography. You have to be um, taking other art courses, learning more about the wider discourse of art so that you can become a better artist. And in these studios, there's one, well, there's so many. You could take painting, you could take sculpture, you could take so many different like open studios where you learn about different techniques. Wooden metal was one that I was like, that's so cool. But there was just this one that was a prerequisite. All the other ones weren't a prerequisite for anything. But there was one of them that was a prerequisite for second year. And it was in studio design course. And I said to myself, well, I don't know, that sounds kind of cool. And like, what? I just want to keep my options open. If I don't take it, I can't go into design. And I was like, I don't really think I want to go into design, but it sounds cool. So I'll take it. Well, anyone who knows my background and uh, my job prior to leaving the corporate creative world will know that I was a product designer. I I was a product design manager for over a decade. Um, And that came because I took this one studio course that was a prerequisite. It was something I had no, it was not on my radar at all. I didn't really even understand the theory behind design. And then I took this studio design course and I fell in love. And I absolutely loved the way that design permeates everything in life and how it was just applicable to so many different things. Maybe also is partly why I love the instructional design that comes with creating a course, but product design where you're actually taking form and functionality and bringing that together with aesthetics but purpose? Absolutely loved it. So it found me in the registrar's office being like, I want to do both of these. And they said to me, they're like, well, you can do two majors, but these are two different umbrellas. One is a Bachelor of Fine Arts, one is a Bachelor of Design. You can't just do two of those. And I was like, well, why can't I do two of them? And they're like, well, people don't do that. I was like, well, I want to. I was like, I don't see what's so different between photography and design. And so there was actually a really amazing uh, woman who worked in the registrar. She retired while I was at the university. And she and I worked together and we mapped out the next four and a half years, every single course I had to take each semester. And I had to do one summer semester. I was able to get my university, my two degrees done in five years because we literally mapped out every single course that I would have to take to do two different bachelors in almost the same time it took to do one. Why did I do that? Because I was exposed to something new, something that I would never have thought out or found on my own. And it still, to this day, affects the way that I do everything that I do. That's the power of being in these environments. And then the last thing that I have listed here, and I'm sure there are more, but I just went through, you know, these are my my big ones. My last pro is that 
have a teacher and mentors to help you along. They grade you, they inspire you, they guide you. They are there with the knowledge and the experience to get you to that next step, to take you to that end goal in mind. Now, I'm extolling the benefits of university and college, but what are the cons? Well, first up, it's expensive. It's very expensive. It depends where you live. If you're over in Europe somewhere and you get free college and university, well, I'm jealous. Uh, But yeah, it it costs a lot of money. Uh, You also have to conform to what and how they teach. I butted heads a lot in university. I had great university experience. I also butted heads a lot because I was very much of the mind that I needed to also make money with my photography, which meant commercializing it, which was against the ethos of the art university. And so there were a lot of instructors that we would get into heated discussions and arguments during class because we butted head. I wasn't conforming to the ethos of what they were teaching. Another con is it takes a long time. You're going to be committing minimum a year. There are some college courses that are one year. There are some that are two years. If you're doing university, you've got four years. It takes a long time. And this is something that I see, I kind of see it everywhere because we are still close enough to the time when you got out of school out of regular school, elementary, junior high, high school, you go into university or college. Like that was the path that most people took or you were a blue collar worker. Those were the options. There are way more options now, but that used to be the options. And because of that, I still see people having this idea that learning has to take a long time and it doesn't have to take a long time depending on what you're learning and the way that you want to get there, it doesn't always have to take a long time. However, university, college, it is going to be a predetermined block of time and you are going to commit to that time. Now, you will probably have exponential growth over that period of time, but it does take a long time. Another con that I see is university, this might seem counterintuitive, it can be broad even when you're on a specific subject. Like Milky Way photography is not something you are going to learn in university. There might be an instructor in photography who knows a little bit about that and can direct you, but no, you're not gonna find these highly specialized things. I was even having a conversation with my sister-in-law who's a doctor, she's a vet, and she was talking about how after they came out of their program, many vets would go and do a even more specialized program. So even though you're going to university and you're getting all of this knowledge and learning all of these things, you still might have to do more afterwards. You might have to learn more afterwards. And this was actually, just as an aside, this was one of the things that blocked me for a very long time from achieving the success that I thought I should have, that I thought I should be at. Because I was like, I went to university. I don't need to buy more courses. I don't need to do more stuff. I should know this. Well, yeah, spoiler alert. That's not how things went. So, 
With university for me specifically, my experience in university is that it gave me a lot of critical thinking skills and it gave me a solid base and confidence and foundation. People often say to me, they're like, Christine, you're so confident. I'm like, well, you know, when you go to university and you sit in these these art critiques that are hours long and people pick apart every single thing that you do, it tends to build up a thick skin, and also over time, a confidence. And there's also that time period in it. You're taking a specific long block of time and devoting it to one thing. Whenever we do that in any instance in life, we are going to come out of it the better for it. So do I recommend university and college? It depends. If you are someone who wants to do this type of work professionally, this will give you a solid basis for doing it in many ways, but it is not necessary. It really depends on the way that you learn the best. And if you are a person who is not very good at self-direction, then university and college is going to be a great place for you because it's going to give you everything you need. But if you're someone who's like really good at being self-directed, you probably don't need it. And if you're someone who's here and you're like, well, this is not necessarily something I want to get into professionally. This is something that I'm more interested in as a hobby. Then no, obviously not. So that leads us into the next type, which is online classes. Now, as I mentioned before, online classes have a variety of ways they can be presented. Basically, we're looking at facilitated learning and then unfacilitated learning. So, you know, self-propelled or or directed or what's called often DIY courses online. Now, from my perspective, um, most of my courses are more facilitated learning. I include uh, Q&As, Q&A calls, communities, places for support, because I personally learn a lot better in that manner, and it also brings in a level of accountability. So I'm going to be looking more so at at those types of online courses, as opposed to like, you know, you go on to Coursera or something like that, and you just buy a one-off course with with nothing else attached to it. Um, That's going to be a little bit different. So what are the pros to online courses? Well, number one, they're easily accessible. Actually, that's a con that I didn't say in the university. Most universities, when you're not doing stuff online, which now um, in this, are we post-COVID yet? In this post-COVID world, in this COVID world, whatever we're in, um, we we can do a lot more of that online, which is nice. But previously, it's like, you got to move here. You got to get to the place. You got to commute, all of the stuff. Online classes are on the computer. (laughs) groundbreaking. I know. But they're easily accessible. So we can uh, just sit down on our computer and get started. Online classes also support a lot of different learning modalities. So if an online class is done well, it can engage a lot of these different learning modalities that we talked about earlier. They can be also really specialized like crazy, crazy specialized. If you want to learn anything, you can find a person who has done it and is teaching it to you in a manner that is quick, is efficient, and you can learn them, you know, really, really quickly. And that's my next point, that they can be very quick. They are not always, 
But I do find that the information I learn from online classes is generally in a more concentrated form. So it's coming to me in a, a much more quick manner than how I learned in college and university. And this will depend on the the person who's putting together the course and the learner. But yes, you know, things can be done very quickly. I remember I ha- I teach this, I used to teach it in person, um, and now I have it online. It's called my Photography for Beginners Bootcamp. And it's three modules. And when I used to teach it in person, it was three days. But the first day is basically the day that I can get someone to learn manual on their camera. And I can do this course in three hours. And if people are doing it self-directed online, you know, it's easy to do this first module in a day on a weekend. I remember doing it once, teaching it live and in person. And afterwards, this one of the attendees comes up to me and they said, you know, I took a full year of photography in university. And they're like, I learned more in these three hours with you than I did in this entire year in university. Now, I'd like to say this person probably had already a little bit of a background. So they were able to take in the information more quickly. But it's also that the information is condensed in such a way that was easier to learn in a short period of time. And that's one of the things that I kind of see online classes are almost like uh, anyone, I don't know if anyone uses the same word, but you know, like the juice concentrate that you can get, they're in like the, the cylinders and it's the slushy, juicy stuff. An online course is kind of like that. And university is like the juice that's made afterwards, right? University, it's mixed all up with the water and it gives you time and space versus an online class is like the concentrated version of it. And one of the things that's really interesting, so there's a study done by the Research Institute of America, and it showed that online and e-learning can actually improve retention rates by as much, and this is a, a, a big uh, varied amount, but they say 25 to 60%. So I'd be interested to look at the actual details in this. I haven't read through all of it, just the, uh, the synopsis. But it says it can improve those retention rates by 25 to 60% compared to traditional classroom learning, which comes in at 8 to 10% retention. That's pretty insane. And I think I know, have some I have some ideas why. And after we go through all the different um types of ways we can learn here, that's what we're going to talk about, because I want to help you be more effective with whichever way you uh, decide to learn. Now, one of the cons, well, a few of the cons here that we have with online classes, they're not all created the same. Maybe this should be a pros in the university and college one, but, you know, most universities and colleges, to a point, they need to be good. They're not going to survive if they're complete crap. There, there are no universities out there that really don't teach you anything to do with the topic that you're doing. They actually, people have to have degrees to be able to be there. Things are vetted. You know, they have to actually know what they're doing to a point. And they generally have the experience to put something together quite well. With online classes, anyone literally anyone can put together a course and put it online. If they seem like they have results in that particular area, they can make a course and sell it. And it might be great. It might be terrible. I've taken some of both pains, so I know. 
So yeah, they're not all created the same and it can be a bit of a melting pot what you get. Another con is that they're not great for kinesthetic learners. In general, online classes don't have the things built into them that make kinesthetic learners really learn effectively. So this is something where the people who are creating it, they need to understand that kinesthetic learners have to be supported by the instructor. They need to get specific homework and exercises and be encouraged to do those things. Otherwise, they're not going to retain the information. So this is one of those instances where some online courses are really great for this, but there are a lot that I find are missing this piece. And then another really big con is that you need to be self-motivated. Now, you might be listening and be like, I am self-motivated. That's great. It's not con for you. But for a lot of us, we might, you know, I would like to just have some ice cream and sit on the couch and watch Netflix. That would be nice. Do I really want to go and do this thing? I, I'm not saying that's always what happens, but it is sometimes, right? So you need to be motivated to join that program, to want to get the results out of it, or the program itself needs to build in that motiva- uh, motivation. And it's different. There are different ways to do that. And I've gone through different courses that have motivated me and built it into the program in different ways. So this is another one where, you know, not all courses are created equal. And sometimes you will be inside a course and you just forget about it. And you're like, oh, I, I was doing that. Like I have, I have a couple of courses that I've bought in the last year where it's like, oh yeah, I did buy that, didn't I? When the payment comes out for it, I'm like, I haven't done anything with that. I should go uh, pay a little bit more attention to it. But it's part and parcel you and it's part and parcel the actual person who puts it together. So that can be a con. And this is one of the things, there are stats out there that say things like course completion rates for online courses are so low. They're so, so low. Now I will say my masterclass, I don't have course completion rates because I don't actually expect, I don't expect people to finish my masterclass. I expect people to finish the first couple of modules and they do, but then I have modules in there that are meant to be supporting people for years to come. And I have students who have been in the class since the beginning. So the start of 2020 is when I, I put my masterclass online and they're still going back and referencing the masterclass material now because it's built to, to grow with you. So I can't give you stats on my course completion rates because I've built a course that's something to be ongoing. But a lot, of, like I think it was Coursera online and they were saying it was like an abysmal, like two to 8% of people who purchase a course actually complete the course, uh, which is really, really crazy when we think about it. But it comes back to this. What's the motivation? Are you actually motivated to do it? Then we have in-person workshops and classes or like one-on-one um, in-person stuff. This is where you're actually like getting together with the instructor, the teacher, and you're doing it together in real life. IRL, friend. IRL. What are the pros of this? Really fast results. You can get really fast results when you go to an in-person workshop. Absolutely. There's also a deadline and a reason to do it all. You have to be there. 
right? So yeah, there there is built-in accountability and deadline and motivation because you got to go. You don't go. You're not getting the class and see you later money for the class. It's also fantastic. If you're a really kinesthetic, hands-on learner, doing something in person is going to be so useful for you. Now, the cons of this, this can be a lot more costly than doing something online. So when we start talking about doing things as a hobby, we're probably not going to be going to university or college, but online classes and in-person workshops and self-directed and self-taught free things online, that's where we're going to be looking at. With in-person workshops and classes, these get to be pretty costly. So one, you have to be in a physical location. So if you're not in a location where you have someone who's an expert in your field, you have to go there. You know, uh, here in Nova Scotia, there are some things that I would like to do, but we don't necessarily have people here who are like the number one best at it. And if I'm learning something, I want to go to the person who's the number one and the best at it. Uh, This is actually why I fly across the country to the West Coast to go to my in-person business retreats, because that particular individual is really good at it. And he teaches in a way that I receive and learn well, but it's costly. It's costly. It can be. Another con is it can be really hard to retain information if you are not an auditory learner, depending on what's offered by the instructor. And this is where I generally feel like in-person workshops and classes are better at the execution of a topic. I It's, it's interesting because... I hadn't taught online to people before the pandemic happened. I did everything in person. And now I have the experience of teaching online. And I have these students who have been with me now since the beginning. And they came to my in-person workshop. And my experience with teaching the in-person workshop now with students who also have the online background, my online course and all of that, It meant that we were so much quicker at getting the actual results. So it was less so, the in-person workshop was less so about teaching and was more so about execution. And if you are in a position where you're able to, my strong recommendation would be to start your learning in a structured environment online, like an online course, with someone that you resonate with that teaches in a way that really um, lands for you as as the type of learner that you are, and then do an in-person workshop or class after that. Because then the in-person workshop and class is less about getting this new knowledge into your brain, and it's more about getting the kinesthetics, the doing of it. And that comes so much more quickly. I even had a comment from um, someone who's been following me for a long time. Beth is her name. And she said, thanks to Christine's online classes, I was able to appreciate my surroundings rather than being obsessed with adjusting settings on my brand new camera on a recent Milky Way in-person class. And she said, the Cape Cod National Seashore in Massachusetts on a mostly clear night left me in utter awe at three different sites. Um, And she says here, you know, she's feeling very grateful that she came across my classes during the pandemic because she's gone through all of it. And she says it made so much more sense because of the online classes. So 
for me, it's not really a one or the other. It's a start with one and then you go to the other. If you're able to, that's going to be the way that you can really retain the information. And that will make more sense because we're going to talk about in just a few moments why we learn and retain information and how we can do that in a better way. So then the last one we have is basically self-taught and self-directed. So there are so many different ways to do this. So YouTube, you receive YouTube, anyone, uh, books, free online resources, MOOCs. I don't know. Is that what people actually call them? I feel like it is. The massive online open courses, like the free university courses and things that you can do online. There's so many different ways. Now, a big pro to this is this generally free or low cost. You know, you can buy a book from someone, uh, you know, you can buy a Tony Robbins book for what, how much? 30, 40 bucks. But you want to go to an in-person event of his, that's going to cost a lot. One-on-one, I would, I don't even know. Does he even do that? Probably not. It would be exceptionally expensive to like actually get FaceTime with him. But to read one of his books, you absolutely can. Another pro with this is it's at your own pace. You can do it when you want to. And really, you know, the world is your oyster here. You can learn anything online. You can learn this just absolutely anything. Put it into the second largest search engine ever, that is YouTube, and it's going to pop up. Now, there's cons that come with this. So you probably already have an idea of what a few of these cons are. Uh, is self-directed. So yeah, you have to be the one who comes up with how you're going to do it, how it's going to be set up, what you're going to do next, all of that. You are the director. Another really big con is that there's the lack of the big picture view. Like how, what is the next thing I should be doing? Why should I be doing it? You don't have the knowledge yet to know that. So that's an issue. That also will then lead to holes in knowledge because you miss out on certain pieces because you just don't know. We don't know what we don't know, right? You and I both. One thing as well is when you're learning this method, can be unsure of the validity of the source. And that's fine. I used to think everything in books was true. I love books. Love, 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 love books. And growing up, I thought, if it's in a book, it's got to be true. How else did they get it to be in a book? Yes, yes, I know. You're shaking your head at me right now. I am too, but I very much thought this. But it's it's the same thing, like a book or a YouTube. It can be people are putting out whatever they want to put out, and you need to do a little bit of work to say, like, is this a person I trust? Do I believe that they know what they're talking about and that they can help me understand how to learn uh, with information that's correct? And then the last one, that's a huge one, a lack of support. Like you are the driver for everything, right? You're finding what to learn, making sure you learn it, you're understanding how you're doing, you're knowing where to go to next. You are the instructor, you are the grader, you are the registrar, you are everything all together in one. One of the the nicest compliments I've got recently is I had a student come into my masterclass and he said to me, Christine, in 40 years of being self-taught, I have learned more with you in a month. And I was like, oh, that's really nice of you to say. Thank you. Uh, So yeah, you know, we can learn anything online. It comes at the cost of your time. And um, what is that time worth to you? And what is having the direction from someone who has been there before worth to you as well? 
And the last bonus one that I said we would do would be conferences. Because yeah, you can learn a lot at conferences, but generally most conferences, they introduce you to a lot of topics under like a larger umbrella topic. So I'm a presenter at the Nightscaper conference next year. It's going to be this year, but um, it wasn't able to go forward this year. So next year, I'm going to be presenting on two topics at the Nightscaper conference. I'm really excited to be there and be a part of it, but I've got an hour and a half to give you a topic. I think it's an hour and a half. It might be an hour. Uh, how much, how in-depth can I get in that? I can't. I can give you a top-level view. I can give you the roadmap, and then that's that's about it. So conferences are fun, and they're a great way to be around and build community, but you're going to need to dive deeper. So of these, which one is right for you? And this really depends on how you learn, and again, what's that goal? What do you want to do? So if you want both an introduction and a comprehensive program, and you want to do this professionally, yeah, university, college is going to do that for you. If you want something highly specialized, I would recommend looking for an online course or an in-person workshop. It's going to depend on the particular topic. Like I said before, if it's all possible, start with an online course. And then after you've done that for a little while, go to an in-person workshop. You're not you know, going to learn Milky Way photography in a university program, like we talked about before. But there are online courses like mine. There's lots of in-person workshops. I kind of liken this to like, you know, I had to do business classes in university. But to learn how to build and sell an online course, yeah, that wasn't taught. Uh, I specifically purchased an online course to teach me how to do that. Yes, I purchased an online course to teach me how to build online courses. I know. Uh, my husband has a degree in business. I mean, he's actually in management at a large Canadian bank. He's worked in business for a very long time. He has that background in marketing and sales and business. And the core concepts are all the same. But the nitty gritty of an online course is very different from the nitty gritty of his day-to-day -day job. So I went to the expert in it and learned from them. And that's funny because I'm like, oh, this, this, and this. My husband's like, yeah, well, it's just like this, this, and this. I'm like, of course it is, but it's, it's the same, but it's not the same. So if you though, let's say you already have experience in an area and you need help with the execution, in-person workshops and one-on-one -on -one are useful. I don't recommend in-person workshops and one-on-one -on -one for bringing you brand new concepts, because your retention is just generally going to be less. We, especially as adults, we generally don't learn something 100% the first time it's introduced to us. But for executing on those concepts that you've already learned, workshops are really great. And for YouTube and other online resources, I find them really great for very specific things. Like, I need to remember how to do a luminosity mask to help me reduce the light pollution in wispy clouds, but I forgot, how do I make the lights for my luminosity masks? Am I adding or subtracting for the yellow channel when I do it? That, the perfect thing to search for on YouTube. I already know the thing that I need, I just need a refresher on how to do it. But to actually be then successful on YouTube when you're learning something you've never done before and you don't know what you need, that's going to take a lot of your time. Okay, so we've got a little bit of an idea now of our goal and we have some the pros and cons and probably you know what way that you are interested to learn and now you're all in, right? 
Because that's the only way that we're actually going to learn is when we actually go all in on it. So now I want to talk about how do we maximize that learning? So the first thing I want us to think about is how are we conditioned to learn? We've talked about this and I've kind of hinted towards it a little bit already. Think about the majority of education you've had in your life. How is it structured? What was the gate that got you to the next step? It's probably doing an exam. You are held accountable for knowing the material, and then you can get to the next step. In school, we sit down, we raise our hand, we do the reading assignments, and so on. We're directing exactly what to do, when to do it, and there are consequences if we do not do it. And it's important to realize that we bring some of that with us as adults when we're starting to learn something new, especially in a formal teaching environment where it's actually a little bit different. And especially if we're coming into things in more of a hobby manner, well, these goals and gateposts, they're not the same as why we had to do them when we were in junior high or high school or college or whatever it is that we took. So the way that we learn actually changes and shifts. And the first thing an idea that I want to bring to you is the idea of what's called distributed practice. And this is one of the reasons why I think university works really well, because it's over a longer period of time. It lets you do this. Another reason why I also think that online courses work really well. So this idea of distributed practice, it can also be called like spaced repetition. It's a learning strategy where the way that you learn is broken up into a number of shorter sessions over a longer period of time, as opposed to learning in one big long block. That's called uh, massed practice. Because when we have the shorter sessions broken up over a longer period of time, we have a higher retention. And so when are we able to do that? Well, we're able to do that very easily with an online course because you go and you pick up little pieces here, you go back to your everyday life, and then you come back to it again. And there's something else that happens here. Have you ever felt like you learned something and then you forgot it? And you're like, I already know this. Damn it. Well, that's actually a good thing. In distributed practice, there's a theory called the forget to learn theory. And researcher Benjamin Storm has said, quote, the ability to retrieve and generate information that is wanted, relevant, and appropriate is made possible by the ability to inhibit and thus forget information that is unwanted, irrelevant, and inappropriate. So when we forget things, and then we relearn and we pick up the things again, our brain is learning the things that are relevant. We forgot more stuff than we are going to remember. But when we remember something that we have forgot previously, it makes that thing stick in our brain more often. And in this idea of distributed practice, you're gonna forget a lot of stuff because it's over a longer period of time. So the spaced learning where we're periodically reviewing information and retrieving that information, it reshapes that forgetting curve and it helps learners control which information is retained and which is discarded. Our brain is weeding out the things that are important versus the things that are trivial. That's why having the ability to return to material again and again is so important. 
Okay, so that's going to be one way. The first way that you're going to learn much more effectively. The next idea that I have for you, you might feel a little bit uncomfortable with it. Well, I always say when we feel something that's uncomfortable, we should lean into it. And this is the idea to teach what you know. <laughs> Did I just, this is a, a podcast episode about learning, isn't it? We're almost at an hour here and I have been talking to you about learning. Now I'm telling you to go and teach it? Yes, I am. Because when you teach what you know, you have to make those concepts clearer in your brain in order to convey it to someone else. In fact, a really effective study method is to explain the material that you just went through to yourself or to someone else that you know. It helps crystallize things in your brain. And how can you get started with this? Well, if you're a photographer, take someone out with you. You're learning Milky Way photography. You've gone out on a couple shoots. Bring someone out with you who doesn't know anything. All of a sudden, you're taking these ideas and you're crystallizing them in your brain and showing them how to do it. And you will be just absolutely astonished at how much more quickly you are going to be learn. You're going to learn. Now, I will say one thing here: you don't have to be like perfect about this. And this, this is where imposter syndrome comes into play. And that's actually the next episode is going to be all about this, and it's really relevant for us as photographers and creatives. But you don't have to know everything in order to teach someone something. You just have to know more than what they know. So taking the time to actually go out and teach someone something, to bring someone with you, lead your own workshop. Do you, is there a place that you know really well? Charge, I don't know how much, maybe if you're uncomfortable with it, charge a, a small amount to start. And then as you do it more, charge more and more, you'll get more experience. But charge a small amount, have people come out with you and you will get them results. You will help them learn. And as you do that, you are going to learn in the process. I always say that one of the best things that I did was start teaching at such a young age because it forced me to learn so much more quickly. And one of the most powerful things you can do when you're teaching someone something and you don't know it, don't just try and like pretend and be like, oh, I totally know that. No, no, no. Oh, that's a really great question. I don't have the answer, but let me get back to you with that. If you have another course coming up, that's when you can do it or a follow-up with them, whenever it is. I can't tell you how many times I said that in the first couple of years when I was first teaching because I didn't know the answer. So I went and I figured out the answer and then I got back to them with it. Okay, the next tip for helping you to retain this information better, to be more effective in your learning, no matter which one it is, is to get moving. The human brain evolved under conditions of almost constant motion. We tend to live a, a much more sedentary lifestyle now, but if you think of our ancestors and the iterations that brought us to who we are now, there's a lot of movement there, always moving. So there's a, a really interesting um, study where researchers went in and they looked at two different elderly populations. One was a sedentary population of elderly people and one was an active population. And they found that the cognitive store scores were vastly different. Exercise positively affected the executive function in the active elderly population. So things like spatial tasks, reaction times, and quantitative skills were much higher 
in the elderly populations who were active because our brain processes information when we're moving. When was the last time you went for a walk and all of a sudden like something like pops in your head and you're like, oh my gosh, yes. Now that's also, there can be some subconscious brain coming in here because we start to turn off. It's the same thing. Like if you're driving and the way that your brain turns on, but movement and getting movement, the importance of that cannot be downplayed. It is something that will help you in so many ways. And sometimes, especially when we are in this learning mode, it is a very sedentary thing. Sit at the computer and watch a thing, sit in a lecture, um, sit and read a book, like all of this. But what happens if we take a video Put it, plug it into our earphones and go for a walk and listen to it. What happens if you're listening to this podcast when you're walking? How do we retain that information different? Okay, the second to last one, get more darn sleep. <laughs> I know, I know the irony, the hypocrisy. I am a night photographer telling you to sleep more. That irony is not lost on me. But the fact of the matter is you retain information when you have more deep, and that is the non-REM sleep. If you get really good sleep within 12 hours of learning something new, it will strengthen your memory and recollection. So if you're working on learning something, get some sleep, get some rest. Don't stay up all night and do it. It's just like Remember cramming for exams? You like stay up all night long and the next night you get there and you're like, I just like I did this. Why don't I remember this? You don't remember it because it didn't sleep. It's the same thing. And it, it, as an adult and a mom and a night photographer, you know, I am not always practicing what I'm preaching. There are nights when I'm just like, but I haven't had anything for myself and it's 930 at night and I want to stay up until 1 a.m. just doing whatever I want to do. But ask me how I feel the next day. It's a, a give and take. And I know on those particular nights, I'm not going to be very productive. I am not going to be learning, but maybe my mental health just needs to stay up late and scroll different TikToks. You know, sometimes it needs to happen. Then the very last thing, the very last thing, and this is important, no matter what you're doing, is to keep practicing, to keep doing it, to give yourself the ability and the leave to do something badly and just keep doing it. And this is no matter the way in which you've decided to learn something, but it can be a little bit more difficult depending on the environment that you're in. When you are in an environment with other people, like university or college, or like a facilitated online learning space, it can be a little bit more difficult sometimes to put yourself out there when you see other people who are doing better than you are. And the thing that I want to leave you with today, when we are striving to get to a goal and we are using a particular method, a particular learning mechanism to get there, the number one thing that will actually get us there is to keep taking action no matter what. And that means keep practicing, especially with photography. Get out there and do it. Keep doing it no matter what. And I talk about this a lot and uh, I'm not gonna go into it crazy here at the end. I appreciate that you've been here with me for a little bit over an hour now. We can 
stop practicing sometimes. We can stop going forward sometimes when we get into this comparison trap. So uh, tell me right here and agree with me, I am not going to compare myself to others. I am going to keep practicing. I am going to stay in my lane. I am going to put on my blinders. I am going to give my everything to the method with which I subscribe to, and I'm going to practice, and I'm going to keep doing it, because that is how you are going to get to the next step. That is how you are going to get to your goal. Everything else that I've talked about are ways to increase how to get there more quickly, are ways to do it more effectively, but to actually do it and to actually get there, you have to keep practicing. You have to keep going out. And one thing I want to challenge you for, and this is specifically for night photography, specifically for Milky Way photography, because a lot of what we've talked about today, a lot of what I talk about on the podcast can be applied to other genres of photography, to other creative hobbies, to whatever, to life. But with Milky Way photography, it can be easy to say, oh, but I live in a really light polluted city, or oh, it's been cloudy for forever. I'll do it when it's nice out. Well, I am in the midst of doing my Milky Way training, and I have been waiting for a clear night so I can get out and do a live shoot with my students, and I am still waiting five days later. There's going to be one. We will have one. I'm putting it out in the universe. By the time you're listening to this, we might have already had it. Get out there anyways. Get out there and shoot. There are things that you can do. There are ways that you can practice and that you can practice different things and different techniques that will help you when you get your ideal conditions. You want to be ready for that. So keep practicing, keep doing it. And remember, learning something new can be uncomfortable. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like survival is up there on the top. But guess what? When you're learning something new, that can actually trigger a threat response because you have to come outside of your comfort zone and you might start coming up with excuses as to why we shouldn't be doing that. And they will seem like perfectly valid reasons, but yes, they are actually excuses. So remember when we are learning something new, If there is discomfort, if there's, oh, I could do this, I could do that, stop and just look at it and say, what is actually prompting me to say that? What is prompting me to to go here? And my recommendation is to come back to why it is that you want to do it. And that will help recenter you and will help you to keep going and keep practicing so that you can get those results. Thank you so much for being here with me today on today's episode all about learning. I can geek out a little bit on things like this because it is a big part of my world. And I would be interested to hear your experiences with learning. What have you found to be useful for you? And if you go back to the VARC model that we talked about earlier, which of those do you resonate with? And how now, when you look at the ways that you have learned in the past, how have you been supported or not supportive with those? It would be a fantastic thing to talk about in the Facebook group, which is linked on the show notes page. The show notes are on afterdarkphotographypodcast.com. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple, um, go to afterdarkphotographypodcast.com. 
and you'll find this um, episode 15. You can go there and click and it's where you can get the actual links for things. So we can have more conversations about this inside the Facebook group. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So as always, thank you so much for listening and I will catch you on the next episode of the After Dark Photography Podcast.